Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editors Kathy Kelly and Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is May 14th, 2021, and we are super excited that mask requirements were loosened by the CDC. This is just another free incentive to get vaccinated, which brings us to another pandemic milestone that the U.S. reached this week. The FDA updated the emergency use authorization for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine to make it available to children aged 12 to 15. And the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices signed off on the move, dramatically expanding the eligible population. But some questions still remain unanswered. Sue, you and Sarah looked at these events for us. Sue, what did you uh, what did you see from the the EUA update? Well, I don't think anybody was surprised uh, that the EUA was broadened. I think the you know the data didn't pose much of a concern to FDA. Um, <clears throat> FDA on a press conference the night the EUA was expanded, Peter Marks um, from the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research really stressed that they took a very deep, thorough. Uh, look at the adolescent data, and um, it did take them longer to review this EUA expansion than it did any of the initial EUAs, which is kind of interesting. Um, Another interesting thing was just hours before the EUA announcement was made is that FDA announced that it would be having a vaccines uh, advisory committee meeting in early June to discuss evidentiary requirements for the COVID vaccines in the pediatric population. And uh, so Marks, Peter Marks explained that what they were going to do was describe to the VRPAC the considerations the agency is using for EUA expansion in the 12 to 15 age group, and then also the criteria that they're going to use when it comes to younger children. Yeah, we were, I, I know some people were wondering if when that announcement came, when that meeting was announced, whether the EUA for 12 to 15 year olds was going to wait, uh, you know, until after this meeting was over, especially since they said they were going to be talking about evidence for age 12 to 15. Um, it, it was a little bit strange timing, I think, on the advisor committee announcement. Well, Sue, when uh, the uh, EUA submission had been announced, you found out that they were not going to do an advisory committee and do you think this is sort of uh, perhaps in some way uh, uh, a chance to uh, reverse that decision uh, and actually we're going to have a more public vetting of this stuff even though the EUA is now uh, is now cleared I think it is definitely an opportunity for them to have a, a transparent public vetting of, of sort of where they stand on use in the pediatric population and what they expect to see in terms of the type of data I think the sponsors obviously know what the FDA wants, but I, you know, just like they convened a meeting in October to discuss the EUA requirements in general for COVID vaccines, I think they're trying to make this as um, transparent to the public as they can, you know, particularly as the, you know, there is more hesitancy and more concern as you get into the younger age groups. And the and there there's going to be more. It, the younger age groups going to be it's going to be a little more complicated because I mean in just in general with dosing. I mean I I know the the, um, the twelve year olds are getting the dose that the adults are getting, but as you get younger and younger, that's that you know may change or you know quite possibly could change. So you know there, there's going to be those kinds of things that they're going to have to deal with as well. Sarah, you looked at the ACIP meeting for us. Um, were there any issues that came up there? 
You know, the ACIP, um, the advisors um, were pretty, um, you know, confident in the use of this vaccine in children. Um, the big kind of announcement there was, was not t completely directly related to, you know, them voting in favor of using it in this 12 to 15 population was that um, CDC also said they were updating their clinical guidance to allow for co-administration of um, the COVID-19 vaccines, all COVID-19 vaccines. This wasn't just about Pfizer's product um, with other vaccinations. Um, previously, their guidance had basically asked for people not to get any other vaccines two weeks before, two weeks after, until two weeks before, two weeks after. Um, and now they're saying that that no longer needs to happen. Um, they didn't really have any new data to sort of say, okay, it's fine to do co-administration now. So some members of the CDC advisory committee felt like maybe this move was happening too fast and there should be more kind of definitive proof that you know there's no impact on safety or efficacy by doing this, um, CDC was emphasizing that really they were just, there was just a big abundance of caution that led to their initial recommendations, not that they really had any concern. Um, and of course, we know that particularly for adolescents um, who, you know, end up really end up getting more vaccines than adults do. Um, and we've seen the data in the US is that many adolescents have missed shots due to the pandemic. So there's a lot of concern about getting them in to get both those catch up shots and the COVID shots. And we know it's hard to kind of get people to the doctor once, never mind twice or three times. So I think a lot of this is being done to kind of make sure, you know, you can kind of get to kill two birds with one stone, get ki kids their COVID shots and their other shots. Um, but it was that was a little bit controversial among some advisors at this meeting. Well, going back to our earlier discussion, I wonder if they're going to take the same view when the COVID vaccines do move into younger age groups. In terms of co-administration? Yes, because there's even, you know, those younger age groups get even more vaccinations on a regular basis. Yeah, it would be interesting, I guess, I mean, then it might be, it would become even more complicated because like I said, they, the co-administration guidance pertains to adults, it pertains to all of the vaccines. So um, then they would be getting into a situation where they were, you know, um, I don't, I could see CDC feeling like they're making things more complicated unless they have a particular concern in this population. I know some of the CDC advisors um, we're most concerned um, if people might be getting a vaccine with an adjuvant or a vaccine with that's also sort of known for having high levels of reactogenicity. Um, and then, of course, there was concerns just about, you know, obviously right now people are paying very close attention to what happens in the real world in terms of safety. Um, so how easily we can sort of monitor what happens if people are getting multiple vaccines. And there was some reassurance from FDA, um, you know, that systems like VAERS and so forth can kind of track multiple vaccines. People can enter that into the report. Of course, then it becomes harder to tease out what actually caused somebody's um, medical event or side effect. Yeah, that was that was uh, the question I was going to ask was how do you how do you determine if it was the COVID vaccine or the DTaP or whatever other one you got at you know in the other arm you know, at the same time? 
Right. So I guess my thought was, I think they feel confident that they have a wealth of data now, right, and of adults. Um, I guess the question would be, are we going to see any kind of unique side effects in these younger populations? And then if they're, if a lot of them are getting the vaccine co-administered with others, does that make it more challenging to figure out what's going on? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the other factor that emerged from all this is that the is the uh, you know the the statements from the WHO that um, you know that came out this morning about how the U.S. shouldn't be vaccinating young children when poor countries around the world can't get enough vaccine for their adults and at-risk populations. So, you know, it, it, this is going to be a tough one. I I know you know. The, you know, the 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 term vaccine nationalism has been thrown around now for a year ever since we've been you know we've started down this road but yeah it, it I I don't I don't know what I don't know really know how you answer that question or or what you do sure you know I just I, I'm flummoxed <laughs> I guess is probably the best word for that yeah I I this, so that was an issue that I thought might come up a little bit at um the CDC meeting you know sort of should the US start vaccinating younger populations at this point or should um we be giving more of our supply to other parts of the world while there was a presentation at the CDC meeting on sort of the impact of vaccinating adolescents on health equity it was very US focused it wasn't um internationally focused but when folks like um, Dr. Fauci or others have spoken about it um, in the White House and so forth, you know, they've always committed to, you know, providing vaccine when possible to other parts of the world. But they usually s- sort of like when you're on an airplane, you put on your oxygen mask first, perhaps. They certainly seem to fo- be focusing on, you know, um, f- you know, getting all of the U.S. population vaccinated first. Yeah, I think the last thing they want to do is is start sharing vaccine, our vaccine supply with other countries and then all of a sudden not have enough vaccine for people who want it in the U.S. Because that, that, you know, politically would probably be a bigger problem than necessarily worrying, you know, the fact that we aren't sharing enough of the vaccine at this point. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll what might be also be interesting, too, is like the U.S. is already planning for purchases of booster vaccines, you know, and even thinking about vaccines that might address variants if we need it. And so what happens if the if we realize like, okay, the vaccines, you know, the duration of protection lasts, you know, I don't know, a year, a year and a half. And what happens if the US starts kind of giving people boosters before large swaths of the world have even gotten one shot again? Um, this could become sort of a s- cyclical thing depending on how soon um, the U.S. population is seen to to need additional protection. Yeah, it, it, you know, I again, I, I I don't know how you answer that question. It's you know, you're probably wrong no matter what you say at this point. <laughs> so yeah, I, I yeah, I I'm just I, I'm I'm a loss. <laughs> I, I have no I have no idea how you how they how these everyone will try and solve this. <laughs> yeah, it's one of these uh, these complex equations that's were kind of. Uh, you know, even theoretically modeling might for kind of the 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 epidemiology of uh, 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 you know kind of uh, average populations versus the uh, spread within the U.S. versus sort of the political impact and sort of kind of there are just too many uh, too many sort of unknowns to figure out sort of what the uh, what the best thing to do uh, 
to do is. And there's certainly certainly arguments on uh, both sides. I know that uh, Sue's EUA stories, were t- she talked to a, uh, a bunch of folks uh, as the EUA was uh, cleared and through kind of, uh, um, and, you know, folks saying uh, um, uh, both things that were kind of one that's were kind of, you know, getting the, uh, um, you know, infection uh, uh, rates under control in the uh, in the U.S. is uh, greatly aided by, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, immunizing adolescents and also sort of kind of the uh, the moral quandary of letting, uh, um, you know, perhaps more vulnerable people who are kind of outside our borders, uh, um, you know, stay at risk longer is, uh, um, you know, is sort of weigh, weighs heavily on others as uh, as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a, there's, no, there's no good way to solve it. Yeah, exactly. Next up is an update on drug pricing and some other healthcare system changes. Uh, Kathy, you wrote about some comments that the new CMS Innovation Director made about this. Yes, I did. This is a shift of uh, topic from vaccines, but um, I heard Liz Fowler, who's the director of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, speak at a recent meeting, and she she talked about where she is on sort of reviewing current um, projects at CMMI and where she wants to go and said that she thought there might be too there might have been too much emphasis on the cost reducing potential of payment demonstrations you know operated by CMMI and she wants to return to a more balanced focus that also includes improving patient care which I thought was interesting in light of things like the uh, most favored nation project that was introduced by the Trump administration that's that <clears throat> demonstration that aims to lower um, prices for Medicare Part B drugs, um, in part by international reference pricing, um, but you know, arguably could jeopardize patient access to treatments and lower the quality of care. Um, CMMI is going to have to make a decision on whether to move forward with, with that demonstration at this point. It's been blocked in court, um, and they uh, it can't proceed unless the administration decides to sort of repropose it and go through the regulatory process. So um, her Fowler's comments uh, struck me as indicating that she has sort of a broader vision for CMMI that will be more focused on health system transformation and not as much on projects focused on lowering drug prices. Um, And actually, that would be pretty consistent with the way CMMI has operated prior to the Trump administration. I mean, there really haven't been demonstrations specifically targeting drug prices since CMMI was established until the Trump administration. Um, President Obama tried to launch one to lower prices for Part B drugs again, but gave up after strong pushback from physicians and patients and Congress and, of course, manufacturers. Um, But the Trump administration has implemented two um, aimed at lowering drug prices. One focuses on lowering patient cost sharing for insulin in Part D. And the other um, has tried to engage health plans to help lower Medicare spending in the catastrophic phase in Part D. Um, Medicare spending in that phase um, has been growing rapidly. And that um, uh, issue has led to a lot of these um, proposals to redesign the Part D benefit. Um, however, that um, that demonstration has not been able to attract a lot of it, um, participation from uh, health plans, and CMMI has announced it's going to be suspended after this year. So that will just leave the, the uh, insulin one. And then, of course, whatever happens with the most favored nation demo. 
Um, so just, you know, in general, there's been a lot of attention paid to the idea that CMMI offers a way to implement changes in Medicare payment policy without going through Congress. And as such could be a way for the Biden administration to implement drug pricing reforms without without Congress, um, you know, which is which is the way the Trump administration tried to use it. Um, but it, it seems to me the fact that the Biden administration has not introduced a plan for drug pricing, and in fact now seems to want Congress to act first, it, it just seems like it's less of a priority for the near term. I mean, there's still the expectation that um, because drug pricing reform is popular with voters, that the Biden administration will want to make progress on that front, but it's seeming less likely that there will be a major new policy coming through administrative action like CMMI. That's that's interesting. I, I mean, I, I noticed one of the one of the people you spoke with in the story was talking about how they didn't think there would be a lot of like splashy things. Yeah. You know, I, I, can you can you change drug pricing under the radar? I, I didn't <laughs> think that was possible. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things that you could do through, you know, these Medicare payment updates. You know, they're um, they could be, you know, I mean. Things like, well, they tried, the Trump administration tried to make, allow plans to be more strict, restrictive for the protected class drugs, for example. I mean, that was, they had to rescind that, <laughs> that policy. But there are things that you can do where you target certain, you know, certain types of drugs or situations, um, as opposed to something like the most favored nation or, you know, a, a broader policy that would just impact more, you know, more products. Um, so I think that's what she was referring to. Yeah, given the news this week that it seems, uh, um, uh, you know, major reforms uh, of uh, drug pricing may not even uh, pass the House, given House. the uh, yeah. reticence of the, uh, um, you know, some of the more moderate uh, Democrats, uh, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the obvious thing to, to think about is, oh, well, it's uh, going to be up to the Biden administration to do some uh, uh, mm -hmm. something that sort of kind of uh, captures voters' attention on uh, um, drug pricing. But uh, um it sounds like from your reporting, uh, Kathy, that they uh, maybe sort of kind of constitutionally, uh, not constitutionally in the sort of kind of the, the capital, uh, you know, sort of kind of parchment yeah. uh, uh, way, but sort of kind of uh, temperamentally uh, um, disinclined to uh, to do that. They just, uh, yeah. um, you know, is there um, something else perhaps beyond the sort of the insulin uh, demo that sort of kind of could be sort of fairly drug focused, but also sort of kind of uh, popular enough to sort of kind of... Uh, um, be widely adopted? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I, I thought there was some support at one point for part of that Obama era, the Part B demo, you know, which involved reviving what was known as the competitive acquisition program. Um, you know, I don't know if they might, and that was a way of using third-party vendors to, to um, negotiate pricing for Part B drugs. You know, I don't know if there might be something along those lines um, that they might look at again. Um, I don't think there was anything else that, you know, that Trump had tried to do. Um, you know, I don't know if this idea about some of the, the Part D, the redesign, you know, if there was ever a way, I mean, that's, you know, sort of what the Trump administration tried to get at. But I don't know if, if, if there would be a way that they could fashion some demonstration you know, around that where where cost sharing could be capped and, you know, the 
uh, Medicare's financial responsibility in the catastrophic phase could be, you know, lowered and then plan responsibility could be increased. You know, maybe I haven't heard that talked about as a demonstration, but I don't know, maybe something along those lines. Yeah, maybe if there's some way to measure for kind of that, uh, um, you know, uh, health spending uh, declines if uh, people have more access uh, mm -hmm. um, to uh, um, to cheaper uh, to cheaper right. drugs uh, up front. Uh, um, mm -hmm. But uh, um, obviously, you're getting all the uh, the various stakeholders together to uh, um, to make that work uh, um, mm -hmm. is a um, is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is the big challenge as always. Yeah, yeah. I guess we'll see. Yep, something else to fight, to watch, yeah. along with everything else that we need to watch. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Finally, today we're going to take a look at another problem that has emerged in drug development, the clinical research when the standard of care is changing. Sarah, you looked at this one for us. Yeah, so I covered an advisory committee meeting last week um, for chemocentrics, um, new drug for um, ANCA vasculitis, and the company ran into a lot of um, hiccups, I guess, with their study design in terms of FDA being pretty dissatisfied with it. Um, but one thing that um, I think bothered the advisory panelists a bit was that um, the trial design um, involved use of standard, involved background therapy, um, but it wasn't really used the way um, the drug would be in the real world now. Um, some of it is because, um, again, how the drug is used evolved from when the company first sort of designed the trial to when it actually was conducted. Um, rituximab was got their approval expanded um, for the treatment. Although, <laughs> the, and so there were questions about sort of how much the company should have known or been able to modify because of this. I know one of the panelists mentioned that the trial results for rituximab in this setting had already been put out. So even though FDA hadn't um, kind of granted an expanded approval, maybe the company should have adjusted their trial design. Um, the other, another panelist sort of said, well, but you also had another arm that had background therapy that actually, I guess, is more of an off-label type regimen. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you could do that, why can't you have, you know, tr treated the patients with the other therapy differently? Um, but essentially what ended up happening in both a criticism of from FDA directly and then from the advisors is um, it was just hard for them to tease out whether patients actually did better on the experimental drug or whether the experimental drug just looks better because those patients were getting suboptimal background treatment um, to make the drug look better. And it, it it's, you know, it does seem like a difficult situation for the company, the industry representative who doesn't get a vote on the advisory panel, but, you know, gets to talk weighed in a bit and you know talked about how it can be challenging for a company to um pivot um you know mid-course as the world shifts you know their timelines are d different particularly if they've already talked with regulators and gotten regulator buy-in although in this case we know from the briefing documents the company never quite got fda's buy-in into what they were doing to begin with um 
so it, it it is a you know a really challenging situation not quite sure how they could have completely you know insulated themselves from this happening um another advisory panelist um you know she sort of spoke up counter what the industry rep was saying and she was saying you know it doesn't matter whether fda told them to do the study this way or not um and you know it doesn't really matter whether they couldn't have possibly had this information going into the study if this impacts kind of the better fit risk assessment of the drug now you just have to weigh it in that way but it's certainly a challenge for companies and i know the week before we saw this a little bit with the oncologics drugs advisory committee's review of accelerated approval one of the drugs that got um, a negative vote in terms of keeping its accelerated approval was sort of a victim in some ways of the standard of care changing then. Um, and so the drug no longer seems as good compared to what's available now. And um, in some, some of the other drugs reviewed in that um, long meeting also had like planned trial designs that FDA picked on because of how they use standard of care and stuff. So, you know, in fields where there's multiple treatment options and, you know, lots of competitors and things constantly evolving, it is sort of challenging for companies to figure out how best to make these decisions. Yeah, that's the it. It I, I know this is a this is a common problem. You hear about it in the generics world, although not quite in this this type of way. But the 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 FDA puts out bioequivalent standards to help generic sponsors, you know, reach you know do the studies they need to do and. Often they'll be in either in the middle of a review or they'll be in the middle of a BE study, and the the product specific guidance, which lists all this stuff, gets updated. In so they're <laughs> mid review, and the FDA's answer a lot of times with those is complete response letter, and they have to start over. So, you know, I'm not saying that that's going to happen in this case, or that should happen in this case, or that or those cases, but you know, I mean. It, it you're kind of you're you're just kind of stuck and I, I don't I hate to say you're unlucky but it seems like maybe you're unlucky <laughs> I don't know right I mean you like I think you do really feel for the companies because it's hard to you know be kind of working along and be at a certain pace and then get the rug pulled under you from a little bit but on the other hand I am sympathetic to what the one panelist said at the advisory committee which is you know at the end of the day FDA is you know a public health kind of safety regulator, right, for patients. And if they learn new information that changes, you know, that sort of safety benefit risk balance, you know, they can't, they can't ignore it because, you know, a company, um, you know, unfortunately is put in a challenging situation. But yeah, it's certainly, um, you know, another thing the industry has to think about in terms of risk planning, I suppose. Yeah, even the uh, this is another option or, you know, tool in the toolbox argument didn't seem to fly this time, which, you know, you you hear that a lot at advisory committee meetings when there's multiple op treatment options that, you know, it's like, hey, this additional, you know, adding something else is going to be able to, you know, give physicians more choices and, you know, <laughs> so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that, too, was, like I said, this particular development program and trial um it had so many things that FDA sort of nitpicked at and that many of the advisors found to be problematic in terms of evaluating you know the benefit of the drug the experimental drug abacapan and perhaps if this one 
issue with the standard of care was the only issue. <laughs> Maybe they could have, you know, um, you know, made a compelling argument, but I think, you know, combining it with some of the other problems they had in their trial design and the results, I think that's where you really start to get into, you know, further levels of questioning. This was certainly not the only issue. This was one of almost probably a half dozen issues. And, you know, you're kind of used to, I think, a couple things often, you know, in question where the, but I'm not sure I've ever seen, you know, an advisory panel that was quite as complicated in terms of the amount of, you know, trial design questions FDA had. It's very, it's very interesting. It, you know, it's, it's always, it, I, I always think it's interesting to have like kind of a, you know, to, to kind of dig into these, these issues when they come up, because I, I know it, it, it's got to be so difficult when you're, you know, you're trying to, you know, it, in the starting phases and trying to, you know, design, do get all these designs right. And you're, you know, you're, you're almost building the plane, well, you know, you know, while it's flying, so to speak, it's, 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 it's gotta well, it, be hard. <laughs> it, it, it does seem like, again, the disease area they're working with and how you treat patients just does make it challenging. Um, again, because you're dealing with patients that have some therapeutic options, they're not ideal, but you can essentially do a placebo controlled study and then patients get treated, you know, they talk basically like an induction phase and a remission phase. So, you know, you get sort of an initial treatment and then when you're in remission, there's usually given like maintenance or maybe, um, you know, if you relapse, you're, you're given a different treatment. And this company tried to essentially like put all, put all of those time points of care essentially under trial. And that made it really complicated in terms of the treatment regimens. Um, so one of the things the advisory panelists suggested was like, maybe you should have decided, okay, we think our drug works best, you know, given at the beginning of a patient's treatment and diagnosis and done a trial there. And then if you want to look at it in the maintenance phase, you should have broken that out to a separate trial because combining everything again made it really complicated when you're already dealing with complicated background treatment. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Matt and I were talking about this a little bit early in the week, you know, you sort of can really see why FDA sometimes pushes companies to go for those like simpler trial designs, because, <laughs> right? Like it's just going, going back to the basics of the scientific method, right? The more variables and things you add in, the harder it is to figure out, you know, which variable cause the effect. And obviously in medicine and disease management, it's not always as simple as we'd want it to be, but if there was a way they could have simplified it, that seems like it would have benefited them here. Yeah, we've written a lot about how uh, companies have, uh, in many ways, shifted their uh, pipeline focus to rare diseases and sort of kind of, you know, areas that sort of kind of of uh, um, unmet need, and there are obviously sort of kind of good uh, um, clinical reasons to, uh, to do that as a science advances and sort of kind of uh, you know the idea that we can sort of kind of get more people treatments uh, um, uh, is uh, um, is is opening those uh, uh, areas up, and also uh, you know the reimbursement challenges if you're sort of going into a crowded area versus sort of going in an area where there uh, where there are no uh, products. But there's also the, those these clinical challenges. Is sort of, kind of how do you handle sort of kind of uh, um, standard of care uh, when there already is a standard of care, and if you're sort of kind of studying a uh, um, in an area that doesn't have a standard of care, it is uh, it is a lot easier. So. Uh, in many ways, uh, I guess we should admire companies for sort of kind of uh, trying to sort of improve where, where there's already some kind of treatment, uh, 
but it doesn't uh, doesn't mean you're always going to get uh, get through FDA if you uh, take on one of those uh, thorny issues. Right. And that was, I mean, this is, we like I said, we could kind of keep going on about all the ways this company kind of got themselves in a bit of trouble. But while there is standard of care treatment for this disease, it's certainly not ideal. And in some ways, the um, it seems like a good number of patients actually run into significant harm, sometimes even death from the standard of care treatment because it leaves their immune system so compromised. So that was one of the, I think, things that this company here was trying to go for was to say it, it limits the need for some of these standard of care therapies. Unfortunately, um, what happened in the trial is a lot of patients on the experimental drug arm still got treated with a substantial amount of, you know, these um, steroids that are deemed to be, you know, helpful for the disease, but also problematic. So then it made it hard for the FDA to confidently say, you know, was this drug actually limiting the amount of these, this product um, patients needed? And was that actually leading to a clinical benefit for patients? So yeah, if they could have documented that perhaps better, um, in terms of, you know, was patients' quality of life or health improved because of the lesser amount of steroids they were taking, even if it wasn't no steroids, perhaps that would have helped them. But yeah, like I said, um, this is certainly if you want to like have a, you know, a good regulatory (laughs) analysis case study of, you know, where you can go (laughs) wrong, this is certainly a a good one to look at. (laughs) Yeah, definitely, you know, Definitely one for the uh, for the file, and you know, <clears throat> so, certainly something to look back on once the you know, they uh, if they get if they uh, you know once they they get through uh, you know through the FDA process and you know see kind of how how it was all addressed. Right. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.